Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today provides real-world advice and research-based information on how to grow innovation by employing new technologies, improving processes, and establishing a culture of creativity and forward momentum. Conventional business wisdom views innovation as the biggest advantage startups have over large, established organizations, often referred to as legacy organizations. This belief is false especially when considering that 70% of all startups fail within 20 months of their first venture round. The truth is, innovation initiatives of legacy organizations have far better chances of succeeding. Organizations with superior resources, money, customers, suppliers, data, employees, infrastructures can overcome challenges from new entrepreneurial ventures. Knowing how to leverage their underutilized advantage is key for achieving sustained, long-term innovation success. We welcome author of Transforming Legacy Organizations, Turn Your Established Business into an Innovation Champion to Win the Future, Chris Ostergaard. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Chris. Let's jump straight into it and start with part one, Sharpen the Axe. And here you share the concept of innovation theater versus innovation culture, where one-off events like hackathons or accelerator programs or even hiring token innovation teams can lull organizations into a false sense of security. There is nothing wrong with all the examples that you just gave. In fact, they can be incredibly valuable tools for innovation. Nevertheless, the reason that we see so much innovation theater in the corporate world is because there are many people in organizations that, you know, hey, we know we got to innovate and the disruption is the buzzword and digital transformation and all of that stuff. And they kickstart initiatives that because they haven't been thoroughly thought through, because the axe hasn't been sharpened enough, you know, the, it's Abraham Lincoln that is you know, at least credited for the quote that if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I would spend four hours sharpening the axe. So that's where it's coming from, right? Meaning I would be well prepared, right? I would think through what's the important strategy and then I would prepare before I went and executed. And and that's very often what, what doesn't happen. And that means that even sometimes when organizations put a lot of money and a lot of effort into something like starting an accelerator, for instance, because it's not a part of a, a well thought through strategy, it becomes more like a one-off event type of thing where eventually once they have run an accelerator process and they get something out of it, then they don't know what to do with it because they actually haven't thought what happens after. So that is when it turns into innovation theater. Yeah, we can sort of check the box. We are innovative. We're doing this. We can use it for our marketing purposes, but it actually doesn't create the type of value that it could create. Yeah, and you tell us only a minority of organizations possess sufficiently broad and deep knowledge about disruptive developments because they're so focused on incremental improvements of the business today or hitting their bottom line or quarterly targets. And many do not take those disruptive developments seriously enough. And, you know, I was thinking in light of today's COVID crisis, we're going to have to do that. We're going to be forced into that. And that's often the case that we're forced into innovation. And that's what the driver often is. Absolutely. So necessity is the mother of invention, right? And, uh, you know, there's this joke circulating on social media that you probably also seen where it says that 
So who accelerated digital transformation in your organization? And then you can check the box. Was it the CEO, the CIO, or COVID-19? And uh, so so because of this crisis, um, we really see, uh, obviously because uh, it really is disruptive in nature, I'm sure there's no one who doesn't experience this that is listening to this podcast. And um, and, and so the, the good thing, if you like in this, if, if we take a glass half full uh, approach to the crisis is that it, um, it forces all of us to um, really rethink uh, what we are doing and it really accelerates digital transformation in any organizations because simply we cannot be together physically and thus we have to start experimenting to a much larger extent. Let's talk about deeper about sharpening the axe and because organizations are masses of humans and humans are held back by heuristics and biases, we cover bias quite a lot on the show, Chris, actually, and I'd love to hear your take because you expand on the several biases that hold us back and you start with optimism bias. Mm. So there are many, many different biases, right? And here, of course, I'm leaning up against the uh, groundwork that has been done primarily by Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, who uh, pioneered this whole uh, whole space on, on, on biases. And, uh, so biases are shortcuts that we as human beings take in order to uh, figure out really fast how to act. And the problem, if you like, is that very often those biases, in fact, are not helpful in a modern world. So our brains are super old technology, right, that literally hasn't been upgraded in many thousands of years. And because of evolution, the upgrades, they go really, really slow. And uh, the accelerating pace of technology and exponential technology, that means that the gap between what we're actually able to do with technology and how our brains think that we are able to act, that gap is in fact widening. And that means that heuristics and shortcuts that are ingrained in our brains that work really, really well as hunter and gatherers, well, very often they aren't as helpful in a world that moves at a pace that our world does, uh, where change is so rapid and a constant. And and some of the, the primary biases, like the status quo bias, for instance, which simply means that as human beings, we would rather not lose than win. And we would rather sort of stick to the existing rather than try out something new as a default setting, because obviously it's the safer thing to do. Less helpful in a world with a lot of change, and it is less helpful for innovation, but it is what our corporate organizations have been designed for, a culture like that. And, and that is one of the core things that we need to really move beyond in our organizations and move beyond this status quo culture that any large corporate has really ingrained in itself. You shared some fascinating studies and you mentioned, for example, we will know these type of people, so often entrepreneurs and we think they're delusional. And you talk about self-delusion and studies on optimism bias with regards to swimmers that actually they can have really surprising results. Right. So the optimism bias is that we as human beings have a bias towards believing that we will actually fare better than what reality most likely will ensure that we do. So we all believe that we will have a, a better future than, you know, the next guy. And most of us actually have the bias that we are more likely to succeed than the next guy. And of course, there are, are degrees to the optimism bias. But 
The study that you're referencing was conducted with a bunch of professional swimmers, where they, in fact, also uncovered that the swimmers with the strongest optimism bias also were the most successful ones. And, and that you, sort of you know, translates into what we also see with some of the super entrepreneurs of the world and the super successful of the world, your Steve Jobs, your Elon Musk, just to name a, a couple of obvious candidates. Now, they also suffer severely from an optimism bias. But in fact, that is also a key driver for them to actually achieve what they're achieving, right? I mean, so it's the weird thing that, one, we tend to overestimate how well we can do, but the people who really, really overestimate that, of course, combined with other talents that they have, and just this one bias here, which Elon Musk, well, you know, there's a bunch of, of different talents that he has, and, and certainly... The power of execution is also one of them. But probably his optimism bias is also a core reason for why he, in fact, succeeds. It links tightly to the idea of purpose, because if you have that type of optimism bias, you must have a very clear vision. And oftentimes, these visionaries are capable of articulating that vision to the organization. And this is core to innovation success. Yeah, absolutely it is. And it's interesting when you take a case like Elon Musk and not just Tesla, but really everything that Elon Musk is doing. If you look at the original vision for what he wanted to achieve with Tesla, I mean, it really hasn't changed. That goes like 20 years back, right? And we see that in many different cases. I remember also looking into NVIDIA, for example, the microchip producer, right, which has also become massively successful and their vision also about 20 years back, was also exactly the same when they started out. So we have these examples of these founders and these innovators, pioneers who have a very powerful vision and they really pursue it regardless of how crazy or unachievable it seems when they start out. I love the idea of them painting the picture. And I often think of edge behaviors or science fiction, for example, where somebody may have read something as a kid that gave them the inkling of an idea. They build on that idea. And then we have Elon Musk's or Steve Jobs in the world who have the bravery or the optimism bias to actually follow through. But going back to legacy organizations and how these biases hold them back, one of the really relevant ones is omission bias. And this is one that many will not have heard of. There are many biases that are sort of related to each other. And the omission bias is, is kind of related to the status quo bias of favoring the existing over trying something new. So the omission bias is favor to sit this one out, right? We have a lot of biases in our brains towards reactivity rather than proactivity. And again, if you think about the brain as this old piece of technology that has been upgraded in thousands of years and is developed for the life on the savannah or, you know, the hunter-gatherer life, it makes perfect sense because it's really about saving energy to only do what is absolutely necessary. So that is how our brains are hardwired. And uh, in a world where food is scarce and where daily life is basically about survival, it makes a lot of sense that you've got to contain your energy to only do what is absolutely necessary. That is exactly also why every single human being is a sucker for convenience and why a lot of the innovations we see in consumer-oriented uh, products uh, is, is completely revolving around uh, convenience because if we can get it more convenient, we want it more convenient. And those biases uh, completely speak to that. So next you move on to industry convergence. And this is where once the world went digital, 
the walls between industries started to fall down and where competitors came from different places than they did in the past. But it also meant that the potential for developing one's organization changed significantly. And here you give the great example of Amazon. To me, uh, Amazon is really a, a core example of a, an organization that has a DNA of really understanding convergence and really understanding the notion of the need to mutate, which is another core conclusion of the book here, to mutate its core in order to sustain itself and keep growing and, and creating ever more value. So the e-reader, the Kindle is one example, but there, there were many different endeavors that mean also that they were digitizing and the need for data storage increased dramatically. And so they invented this thing called AWS, cloud storage, which was initially an internal product just for themselves. But as they perfected it, they saw, of course, also a market potential. And now it's the biggest revenue generator for Amazon. And that also means that the need for data centers increases dramatically. And the data centers, they need a lot of energy. Right? So what do, does Amazon do? Well, they start Amazon Wind Farms, which is uh, another example of them then not only meeting their own needs, but in fact, also powering private homes. And really, when you look at Amazon, what you see is that, you know, you can come up, you can really, there are dozens of other examples of this, how they are, you know, converging, how they are moving into other industries. And one of their strategies for doing that is really to look at their own needs and then starting to experiment and then starting to fulfill their own needs and then learning from that and then they're able to push it out to uh, the market as well yeah it's such an important one and you give the great examples of this of i'm a worker within an organization and i have this idea and i'm like hey we could actually build this into a product and i go to the ceo and the ceo goes to me great idea aiden you need to go and speak to legal and you talk about examples of this where these are absolute idea killers within legacy organizations there are so many of these stories around. So if, if you work in corporate life, you know this. If it has to be compliant with legal, and I'm not talking about breaking the law, but if that is sort of, yeah, yeah you know, take it to legal or it, gotta, it has to be compliant with IT. That, you know, typically is not what you want to hear if you are really on a, an innovative, potentially transformative path, uh, because that create that simply creates barriers. And and um, yes, at a certain point, you got to check in with legal. And uh, But the question is always when you need to do that. And the question is also whatever innovations we're working on here, should it be compatible with existing systems or not? And that really depends on what it is that we're trying to achieve in our organization. If we move down the existing path or whether we carve out a, another track for ourselves. Let's move on because we have so much to cover and you really do a great job of covering all the elements that are important here. And even, for example, bias leads to that, to the status quo bias, to a CEO being tied to the bottom line and not having the buy-in of the board and the investors and shareholders, etc. But moving on to the customer, and more and more organizations make customer first the focal point of all their strategies. But you say often there isn't enough of a basic understanding of what the most important thing is for the customer in, in the first place. And here you share the fundamental fours, an important consideration when transforming legacy organizations. I'd love if you'd share be, do, feel, and look. Absolutely, happy to. Yeah, so 
This is really work that I've done uh, together with my uh, partner, Lila Pavlak, uh, uh, over the course of a decade. And um, in fact, there's also a free white paper on this that I can re recommend to your readers if you go to fundamentalforce.com. Uh, to to read more in depth about this, but there's also a chapter about it in the book. Now, so the basis is that you know, as a human being, none of us we go to bed at night and say tomorrow uh, I want to be a worse version of myself than I was today. Right? Uh, that's just ridiculous. In fact, it's quite the opposite. As human beings, we're on a constant journey towards better. Right? From the very first breath to the very first step to the very first day in school, at work, on the golf course. We call that the quest for the better me. As human beings, it's innate in us. We're always striving towards better. And so what we have done in our research is to investigate the what are the core motivations that drive us as human beings, the, the one, and those we call the fundamental force, and, and because they are fundamental to us as human beings and because... Yes, it's a force, and there are also four of them. There's, and we call them be, do, feel, and look better. And, and so if you can honor those motivations and make sure that you don't dishonor any of them, then you are much more likely to create customer value and to uh, create customer loyalty. So be better is about our morals and our values. It's about feeling like a good person. Right? So uh, when... We uh, buy organic eggs or, you know, I drive a Tesla, an EV. And, you know, it's because, uh, one, yes, I like the car, but I, but it's be primarily because it's an electric vehicle, right? And it makes me feel that I have a less negative impact on the environment. So it honors my be better motivations, my, uh, my values, my moral landscape, my feeling of being a good person. Uh, do better is the motivation uh, about our competencies, our skills, our results. So that's really anything bigger, better, faster, stronger goes into this category. This is where most organizations place the majority of their uh, focus and efforts. And, of course, it's massively important. Convenience also lives here. right? And uh, almost anything digitization is very much focused on making us do better. GPS is a do-better product, right? It makes us better at moving from A to B. And feel better is about our emotional uh, experiences. So um, Apple is really good at many, many things, right? But one of the things that they're also really good at is, is making people feel better, really catering to the emotional experience. So when you think about I don't know if you uh, own an Apple product of sorts. Loads of them, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Loads of them, right? And so you remember when you get got the box of whatever Apple product, right? And you remember when you opened the box, right? And in fact, you don't open an Apple box, right? You open an Apple box because it takes somewhere like four to six seconds because they know that that's how long it takes for human beings to emotionally connect to something. They call it the unboxing experience, right? They literally spend millions of dollars developing the unboxing experience. And it's also one of the reasons that, you know, they have, they're so organic, the Apple products, which also makes us uh, much more, uh, relate much more to the products. In fact, I once did some, uh, conducted some focus groups with a bunch of Apple lovers. And uh, I remember there was this one woman in the, uh, 
uh, in the focus group who said that um, this is a while back, some back, and she said that uh, every night when she went to bed, she sort of patted her Mac good night. <laughs> sort of almost created a uh, a relationship with the Mac, and the, and that is just you know she also didn't have a boyfriend at the time, so you know <laughs> there was a, a some sort of correlation there. But it just really speaks to the power of making people feel better and really making this emotional connection through your products, your offerings, your services. That is really really powerful. And then finally, the fourth motivation is uh, that we call look better, which is about social status, which is one of the ones. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, so I know you're based in Ireland. I'm based out of Denmark. I know here in the Nordics, we have a sort of a tendency to downplay the notion of uh, status as being less important. And we even in, in the Nordics have something called the Yente Law, which, uh, which, yeah. Yeah, which literally states that you know, don't think you are anything. Don't try to sort of wear your hat too high, which is a, a, a very special cultural thing. Not in a negative way, right, Chris? It's, it's more of a positive thing. It's more like... Mm everybody's the same and let's treat the lowest of society the same as what's perceived as the highest we're all human beings it's, it's a very positive thing i i loved it because i only discovered it through your book and i you know one of the things i, I hoped was that you know these crises like the COVID crisis maybe it can instill a bit of that back into the world where it kind of disappeared in the past yeah i i think it has you know a, a positive side and a negative side and i, I completely agree the positive side to to this Yande law, to a large extent, is that we uh, in the Nordics uh, have is very powerfully ingrained in our cultures to uh, to think of everyone as being equal and no one being as you know quote unquote better than other people, uh, in the sense that you know uh, everybody should have the same opportunities, etc. So that's certainly a very positive thing. The negative uh, part of it, if you like, is that uh, and it has changed somewhat in, in, in latter years is that um, if you are successful, it is treated with a, a certain level of suspicion. And uh, you got to be sort of careful. I'm, I mean, the contrast uh, to, to speak in stereotypes here is sort of the American way. And uh, yay, uh, I'm a billionaire. Uh, look at my money, right? That would never, ever fly in a, in a society like the, like the Nordic one. But nevertheless, regardless of what kind of cultures we have, again, back to the notion that our brains uh, all over the world are all technology, status is really, really important for us. And the reason that it's important for us is because it is tied to the notion of feeling a sense of belonging and that you are part of a community. And if, you know, if, if your group didn't like you uh, back on the savannah thousands of years ago, then, you know, that would be a serious problem. And that might, you know, if they expel you, you might die. And we no longer die in most parts of the world. But loneliness is a is a, the new sort of huge big thing, right? And uh, possibly even accelerated through this coronavirus. And that means that we really need uh, social recognition. That is why also uh, that social media is so addictive and likes are addictive, right? Because every like we get releases dopamine in our brains and literally makes us happier and thus also potentially makes us addicted to the social media. But uh, the notion then is that if you can make your your customers and you really also translate this into your uh, employees and we do more and more work really using the notion of the fundamental force and how to make people be to feel and look better also 
to run workshops internally in organizations and apply this you know, to employees. If you can make people be to feel look better and make sure you don't make them be to feel and look worse, that is a really, really powerful tool to uh, create value for other human beings. The core message, I suppose, is, is really understand your customer, get onto their side of the bridge. And you tell us startups, for example, really know who their competitors are because they focus on one problem. And I quote you here when you say smart startups focus on one problem, one value creating services, one process worth optimizing, one potentially transformative experience, and then do everything they can to become world champions in just that one thing. And that is why innovation is much easier for them than it is for established companies. I thought about this in the world of minimalism, you know, the way people are like, you live minimalist lifestyle. And I thought how easier it is for a startup because they've nothing to protect. There's no loss aversion because there's nothing there in the first place versus a legacy organization has to keep the organization, perhaps as a legacy IT system, perhaps it's people in their jobs. Well, for a startup, it's much easier because it's a blank slate. Absolutely. So while it's certainly not easy to start a startup, and it's certainly far less easy to create a successful startup, in a sense, that is absolutely correct, right? It's, relatively speaking, a simple mission on focusing on one thing and then just become the world champion at this. And the legacy organizations, the larger established companies, they have much more complex systems which makes innovation much harder. And they have a, a back to biases, another bias, uh, or can be a bias, right? which is the sunk cost fallacy, which means that whatever our earlier investments, be it money, time, or emotions, also makes us can make us less open towards letting something go. It, it is the core reason that so many companies have legacy IT that, you know, in many cases is 30, 40, 50 years old and they haven't you know, transformed yet into newer, better systems is because they have so much sunk cost, so much money invested in it that eventually it grows into this monster that it seems uh, completely impossible to change. Therefore, they just continue to, you know, make small incremental uh, improvements on it that uh, wind up becoming a huge barrier for, for their innovation efforts in the end. So let's dig deeper into this, because I love the exercise you came up with here. You tell us we have to explore competitive landscapes in a slightly different way than have been done traditionally. So the days of focus groups, research, etc., declared data versus behavioral data. And you created a game which you call Six Degrees of Competition. I'd love if we played that game live now on air with our audience, Chris, uh, and perhaps you can pose a question, give a little pause for people to ponder the answer, and then give the answer yourself. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Six Degrees of Competition. So the idea here is to say, take your core offering and then explore what is the first degree of competition to that core offering? What is the second degree of competition? And go all the way to the sixth degree of competition and then see if you can tie the knot back to your core offering and the value that it provides. Now, so uh, the question here is, uh, so I'm going to use coffee as an example just to keep it simple. right? So think about whatever the biggest coffee brand in your part of the world is. So in, I may live in the Nordics. One of the biggest brands is called Gevalia. Um, so in, if you're in the U.S., it may be Folgers. If you're in Italy, it may be Lavazza. There are, of course, many different co coffee brands. Now, so think about 
what the relationship might be between coffee and autonomous vehicles in terms of competitive landscape. So I just gave that a second, and then let me try and run you through the logic here. And I, I, I see a potential strong relationship here when it comes to exploring your six degrees of competition, which shows you what the competitive landscape could look like with a future lens, but also what your opportunity space is. So 400 grams, 500 grams of uh, the biggest coffee brand in your region of the world that you can buy in the supermarket. What's the first obvious degree of competition? Well, you can name literally dozens of brands. So Nescafe, for instance, is in almost any country in the world. But you can li name literally dozens, right? If you go to the supermarket, they're all next to each other, almost identical product, identical price, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the second degree of competition to those 400 grams of ground coffee you can buy in the supermarket? Well. Probably tea, right? If you uh, drink tea, you don't drink coffee. So in that very instance, uh, the tea cannibalizes on the coffee. What could be a third degree of competition? Well, maybe if we think about cold beverages instead of hot beverages, so sort of an adjacent product, you could think about Red Bull or Coca-Cola, right? So it's not hot like coffee, but it's uh, loaded with caffeine like coffee and in many ways provides the same value that coffee does, which is to give us you know, energized and alert, right? which is a core value in, in uh, drinking coffee. Now, what could then be a fourth degree of competition if we think entirely different business models than, in fact, grounding and selling coffee? And here you can go and think about what about something like Starbucks, right? If you go to Starbucks or another coffee chain or coffee store and you pay a lot more money for your cup of coffee, then you don't brew it at home, right? So. Typically, when I do this exercise and when I ask people in, in uh, an audience, when I do keynotes around the world, uh, they can follow me pretty well up until this fourth degree of competition. But when we move into the fifth and sixth degree, it typically gets more difficult. Uh, and this is also where we typically take a more a sort of future lens. Now, so um, let's think about a potential fifth degree of competition to those 400 grams of coffee you can buy in the supermarket. if we think exponential technology and how you can use technology to create the same value here. Now, so think about a thing like the Muse. So the Muse is a meditation device. It's a device that you put on your forehead and behind your ears. And what it does is that it can read your brain waves. So it can read whether your brain is in beta, alpha, or theta state. And you also wear headphones when you use it. Because uh, while it reads your uh, brain waves, it also plays noises, sounds. So it can be the beach or the jungle or the city. And you hear these noises and you hear wind. And the closer you get to theta stage, which is, is where you want to go here, right, the less noise you hear and the less wind you hear. And if you like really hit the sweet spot, then you hear birds tweet. And you collect bird tweets on the app. So it's gamified meditation in a convenient way. And I can't help but think about you know, products like the Muse, and there are other products out there as well. There's one called Think. There's a, a bunch of others increasingly on the market that do something similar. What they might do to coffee cup number three, four, five, or six during the day, right? When you're like 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you're kind of tired, but you know you got to stick around a couple more hours at work. So will you drink that extra cup of coffee, or will you maybe spend seven minutes with your meditation device?
And now finally, the sixth degree of competition, right? So remember I said, what might be the relationship between coffee and autonomous vehicles in a, a competitive scenario here? Well, think about a near future, let's say five to 10 years from now, depending a little bit on where in the world you live, where you are able to take a self-driving car to work and you no longer need to hold a steering wheel going to work. Will that mean you won't drink that extra cup of the coffee in the morning to sort of be focused and alert? Perhaps, perhaps not. But where do a lot of coffee brands, that also goes for Starbucks, in fact, that also goes for Red Bull, where do they sell somewhere between 20 and 40% of their product? Well, gas stations. So what happens when we no longer need gas stations? Right, The entire value chain shifts dramatically. And the core question becomes, when you do this six degree of competition exercise here is, you know, do we sit in our boardrooms, in our management teams, in our R&D departments, marketing, sales, et cetera, et cetera, and explore the fifth and sixth degree of competition? And in most cases, the answer is no, we do not. We sort of go to the third, maybe fourth degree, and then we feel we have a full understanding of the competitive landscape. But that means that there's a lot of threat that we don't see. It also means there's a lot of opportunity that we don't see out there. And that is absolutely core for any organization that wants to be on the forefront of innovation. It is to create a culture and use the right tools in order to enable their people to, in fact, go beyond the obvious to explore how might we create even more value in the future. Uh, leveraging uh, technology and uh, all the other megatrends out there in the world. It reminds me just of the big problem. So say you have somebody in the organization who's a different thinker, who may think in six degrees of competition or think questions like that and go, hmm, what if? And they're often seen as strange or outliers or perhaps underperformers in their organization or perhaps they're little bit too strange and like you said on the savannah they're that person in the tribe that uh, people wonder mm, maybe the tribe's just better off without them and many organizations dismiss those thoughts and those questions because they seem distracting to the core business that is absolutely key <clears throat> and it's your classic innovators dilemma you know clayton christensen uh, who sadly passed away recently right that's exactly what he talks about in, in the innovators dilemma which is uh, the notion here that, well, you know, uh, we don't really have an incentive to go the new way because we're super busy and probably maybe also successful in doing ways, things the ways we have always done. Uh, but of course, that will only remain a truth uh, for so long. And particularly in a world that we are living in increasingly, I mean, uh, as we like to say at, at Singularity University, um, um, is that, you know, because of the exponential development of technology, uh, things are moving faster and faster, but they will never be as slow as they are right now. Right? And that is simply uh, a fact. And if you add to that the coronavirus and what it has, uh, how it has disrupted, you know, all, any, every, almost every industry uh, in the world, here, a few for the better, a lot of them uh, has created uh, obviously massive, massive issues. It really means that acceleration in terms of innovation needs to increase even more. I've come to think of this as innovation at warp speed. We actually uh, now need to innovate at warp speed. And what was fast three months ago, that just became too slow because of this massive disruptive nature that the virus has had on the world. I was mentioning that, you know, the way the organization may reject the person. And 
I often think of, there's a quote by a Brazilian-born British scientist, a guy called Peter Medwar, and he said, the human brain treats a new idea the same way it does a strange protein in the body, it rejects it. And the reason I share that is because you devote a huge part of the book to the idea of the corporate immune system and how the immune system rejects new ideas. And you talk particularly about personality profiles, psychological barriers, and indeed the level of capabilities within the organization. So what really struck me and what I've spent a lot of my recent years, let's say like the last seven, eight, nine years in Silicon Valley, and for, for a number of years, it's been really popular to talk about the immune system in relationship to talking about the large established companies in the world, the ones not from Silicon Valley, who have a very hard time innovating. So it was a metaphor that really resonated with me. But what also really struck me was that whenever someone was talking about the immune system, there was always a lot of finger pointing going on. So it was like CEOs pointing to middle management saying, you know, they're the guys and girls, they don't want to innovate. And, you know, there's even another term popular in Silicon Valley, which is the uh, middle management permafrost. Which is, you know, making everything just freeze over and nothing can get done. Right? But you know, the middle managers they point to the employees and say, "No, it's them, them guys. They don't want to innovate." And the employees they point back off the chain of command. So everybody's pointing at everybody, right? And saying, "Yeah, it's because of those people, right? That's why we cannot innovate." But is that really true? I mean, is it just in quotation marks? And you know, with people saying, no, we don't, and then things don't happen. So I really started to research this in more depth. And and what I found was that, yes, of course, there's human resistance to change. It's a real thing. But I will argue that it's not the most important barrier towards innovation. And in fact, it's helpful to understand the immune system in three layers as both an individual immune system, as an organizational immune system, and uh, as a societal immune system. And we need to understand them all in order to avoid the barriers that they may create. So yes, there's human resistance to change that has to do with, for instance, our personality profiles. We all have different risk profiles as human beings, right? That's neither good nor bad. It's just how it is. Some of us, we like to bungee jump. Some of us, we really think that's the worst idea in the history of mankind, right? But that's just how it is. It does impact, though, how open we might naturally be towards big transformation and innovation projects because innovation is inherently risky and therefore not everyone will be equally open towards it. And that is something we need to mitigate and design for. We also have psychological resistance back to all the biases we, we spoke about earlier. And we have massive capability deficits in, in organizations around the world. And if you as a human being feel that you may not have the capabilities to move into the future, then of course you will have resistance towards it. So all of that points to, yes, of course, that can impact human resistance to change. That's a real thing. And we need to understand that and we need to design for it so that it doesn't hold back our innovation. But even more important than the individual immune system is the organizational immune system. That is constructed of uh, organizational KPIs and reward systems. That is, you know, generally speaking, KPIs and companies, they are a mess. They're not aligned with strategy. They are not aligned between departments and divisions. And 
That means that you literally what most organizations do, KPI systems, many organizations is another one of those monsters that, that you know, have been built on top of for many, many years. And eventually no one really understands how they work or how they fit together. And that is why in most cases they do not. And that creates you know, what we in game theory call a, a coordination problem. People literally cannot move in the same direction between departments or divisions because their KPIs tell them something different. So if KPIs are not aligned with your strategy and uh, with uh, whatever you are uh, saying out loud as leadership in terms of we need to be more innovative, we need to disrupt ourselves or whatever language is being used. If the KPIs are not also adjusted towards that, then you have a coordination problem and then you most likely will not succeed. And the legacy IT which we spoke about is another part of the organizational system, as is investors and shareholders who demand short returns. Now, so the problem uh, or, or the thing here is that if you take that organizational immune system, I mean, like the organizational system, and you hold it up against the individual in the system, then the system will always win. Always. Organizations, they're not democracies. It's not like we can, we can elect a new leader every four years or whatever, right? So that means that either you shut up and do as you're told or you go somewhere else. So the system will always win. So if you really want to be optimizing for innovation, then you need to look much more at your system and adjust your system. And then most people will follow. It actually turns out that people are remarkably adaptable to change if they have the right context to do it within. That is why it's also interesting that as we are in corona crisis mode now, what that in fact also means is in most cases, human beings have become much more open to innovation than they were before the crisis because the context has shifted dramatically. And it's obvious to almost everyone that the rules have just changed and we need to do something else. So in that sense, you can think of that also as an innovation opportunity. Yeah, and I love the idea of the coordination problem, Chris. You give the example of sales versus IT, but before that, maybe give the example of the prisoner dilemma, which really brings it to life. Yeah, so the prisoner's dilemma is sort of that classic game theory example to explain the um, coordination problem. And so the notion is that two people captured by the police and they, uh, you know, so what should they do, right? Should they rat each other out or should they keep quiet? That's your classic dilemma if you are a criminal and you are caught and you have a partner as well. The dilemma um, can be a little uh, hard to grasp if you only hear it and don't see it. At least it was for me because uh, I, I sort of need the visuals as well. But so the notion here is that, you know, the captured criminals, they can either choose to stay quiet, which will put them one year in prison, or they can rat each other out, which means that one of them won't go to prison, but the other one will uh, go to prison for three years. And if they both read each other out, then they will go to prison for uh, two years, I believe it is, right? So the smart thing is to stay quiet, but it means that they got to believe that the other one stays quiet as well, because if they don't do that, they both actually go to prison for a longer time. And so that is the coordination problem here. So how do we actually coordinate? And if you translate that into organizations, uh, then you, you see this coordination problem very often in between you know departments or between divisions or even between colleagues uh, in in the sense that what is my incentive to do something maybe person a has a lot of incentive to do something but it isn't necessarily clear that that incentive also translates to other people and you may even uh, as i mentioned with the kpis have very different incentives 
So we have these coordination problems all over the place. It's a very difficult and complex thing to navigate and to mitigate when you uh, when you design incentive structures in organizations. But that is also one of the reasons why, you know, keep it simple is, is really a good measure in many organizations. And what we also see increasingly that organizations do is that they make a KPI system simpler. In some, in some cases, they even completely abandon them. They make them much more uh, transparent. And they think about creating much more qualitative uh, KPIs as well that are maybe not as easy to measure, but that uh, are more designed in order to create a certain behavior to influence culture that is more something you can then use for conversations around are we actually creating the right culture rather than it is very hard measures on people. One of the things we mentioned there, the coordination problem, that also exists between upper management, so CEO perhaps, and the board or investors indeed. And for innovation to thrive, we need investors and shareholders to be on board with long-term investments. And if this is not the case, it's a huge weakness in the organizational immune system. It is. It's another one of those things that the system is designed in a way that, at least if you're a public company, that you have your quarterly numbers you got to share and everybody expects them to meet or exceed expectations and to go in a in a positive way and that you know in a lot of ways makes you know perfect sense the problem is that it is inhibitive for thinking long term and for you know daring to not necessarily make uh, as good short-term returns as you can because you're playing a longer game and maybe even being open to losing a few battles in order to win the war. But it demands a lot of faith in that we are actually have the right vision and we're moving in the right way, uh, in the right direction here. And many organizations don't have that. Many boards don't have that. Many investors don't have that incentive. As is the case with the individual and organizational immune systems, there are three parameters in the societal immune system that you mentioned earlier. And we must address these if we want to strengthen innovative power or potential within an organizations. So maybe we can share a top line on these three legislation, legacy customers and suppliers, and the general economic climate. As you said, there are, there are three core elements to this. One is legislation. Uh, so legislation is a barrier towards innovation in, in many instances. Uh, that's also why it's typically the incumbent's best friend, because legislation is gunning, if you like, for the status quo. We have developed legislation to uh, make certain that we you know, uh, adhere to certain rules and that society runs a certain way. So if someone comes with a disruptive opportunity that doesn't play by those rules, then legislation is certainly something to hold that back. When we look at the technological development and also developments within business models, then very often it is not what we are actually uh, potentially capable of doing or not doing that is holding us back. It is whether we legislate in a way so we allow it now. So Uber is a classic example of a new business model that in most countries around the world weren't ready for. And I do think that Uber has done a lot of things that were ethically questionable in scaling efforts. But I think it's undeniable that most people who have driven or used Uber as a service or one of the similar competitors, in many ways, from a customer perspective, far superior to the traditional taxi experience. 
So looking from the perspective of, you know, if we can create more customer value, and it's you know, obvious that it would win the market. That did seem to be the case, but nevertheless, legislation was a barrier and insisted on being a barrier towards introducing uh, services like Uber in many countries, or at least with a lot of limitations uh, on it, because it didn't fit the existing model and it significantly challenged the traditional taxi model. And so what the taxi businesses did in unison, of course, was primarily lobbying legislation in order to uh, to hold Uber out here. Right? And it's the same when we, when we talk about autonomous vehicles or using drones, etc. We could use those to a larger extent than what we are doing around the world. And the reason we're not doing it is because we will not allow it because of legislation. That, of course, doesn't mean I think we should just let the autonomous vehicles roam free. I mean, they're not good enough yet. But it's just to sort of state that as an example. And again, back to the coronavirus, what we're seeing now, in fact, is a lot of experimentation and opening up of drone services all of a sudden because we need to keep social distancing. That, in fact, also makes legislators legislators uh, think, yeah, okay, well, let's look at maybe how we can use this to a far, uh, further extent than what we, we used to do. Legacy customers and providers is another of the societal barriers in the societal immune system. The point here is that you as an organization may be on the right track of digital transformation. And particularly if you're like the, the big one in the market, it means you have a lot of customers who aren't necessarily as far on the journey as you are in terms of digitization. And you most likely will have a diverse group of customers that some of them are and some of them are not. So you need to educate them and you need to bring them along with you. And the same goes for your suppliers in your uh, supply chain. Many, 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 many small organizations that live off of being part of a large organization's supply chain. They typically don't have the awareness and the resources to double down on digital transformation to the same level that the big ones do. So if the big ones are to truly create the impact that they want, then they need to help them along as well. They need to also help educate them and need to help enable them to also digitize. And then finally, there's the economic climate. And, you know, the notion is, and I, I see that all over social media right now as well, where, you know, people, they write that, you know, a crisis is the perfect time for innovation. And, you know, in many ways, they're right, but they're also wrong. <laughs> and the reason I'm saying that is that when you look at research and you look at statistics, it is clear that generally when we have crises in the world, innovation suffers. On a general note, innovation always suffers. So the majority, they don't double down on innovation. They, in fact, do the opposite. They stop their innovation efforts. But the reason that they are also right is that we have also seen remarkable successes come out of crisis. So again, necessity is the mother of invention. And that means that there is a huge opportunity in a crisis if you double down on innovation to, in fact, come out of this creating more value and also come out being a winner in the long term. But it's not obvious that this will happen for any given organization. And the majority will not go that way, even though they should go that way. You're right there. I'm one of those people. I'm kind of been optimistic about this. I mentioned IBM 
HP, Apple, I think Microsoft as well, they all came out of Great Depressions or recessions in some way. But the big mm. risk is those smaller companies like SMEs who may not have the runway or, for example, like you mentioned, Amazon earlier on who had created AWS, had a stockpile, a war chest of investment there to give them runway to get through this. And it's that's the problem. It's those businesses that lived mm. by the skin of their teeth. Mm and just had enough revenue to pay their people and invest in the business as it was yesterday. And they haven't got enough runway to kind of get them through this and continue to innovate. They may be able to tweak little parts of the business, but they don't have enough to really have a step change innovation. Yeah, no, it's true. But it also goes for a lot of large companies who may in fact have money, although they're suffering. But uh, and any organization will look at their cost, of course, and cut cost in a crisis. I mean, that is natural. They have to do that. But they, at the same time, they have to double down on innovation. And also many large companies who uh, may have the resources to do so won't do it uh, because they you know, become even more risk averse in times of crisis. But it's a balancing act. But at the end of the day, if you want to be the innovation champion on the other side of the crisis, you need to double down on innovation when you are facing even these difficult times that we're facing now. And I do think that you know part of the good news is, which is also one of my major conclusions in the book here, is that while money, of course, is not unimportant, a lot of innovation and increasing your innovation powers has much more to do with mindset and design than it really does money. You can achieve a lot with uh, little money if you have the right sort of innovation design behind it and if you are able to create the right mindset around it. And you really do a great job of that because even talking about do you fish in the storm as the Eskimos do depends on your mindset, depends on your risk profile, depends on the biases, depends on KPIs of the business, et cetera, et cetera, and depends on the long-term view of investors and shareholders. So it's all interlinked really well. But one of the things I thought you did really well, and Chris, and, and I know you do this a lot, is bringing businesses to visit Silicon Valley or startup accelerators, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of our audience of this show work in those accelerators or run them, or perhaps they're CEOs who have an internal accelerator within the business. I thought we'd jump to innovation teams or units within organizations because Oftentimes people wonder, should I do it externally or keep it away from the core business so the core business doesn't drag it down? But I love the idea you talked about, about creating a Trojan horse within a legacy organizations, because sometimes organizations can appear to upgrade the core rather than challenge it. I think what is essential if you are a, one of those legacy organizations and you have a complex system is that you need to understand that innovation is not one thing. And in fact, it's helpful to innovate in multiple tracks at the same time. I, I define those tracks as three tracks where the track number one I call the optimizing innovations. You know, that is your metaphorical extra blade on the razor. When you, know, when, when you see the TV ads and the razor manufacturers say, now we don't have three blades, we have four blades. And then, you know, two years later, they don't have four blades, they have five blades, right? That's an optimizing innovation. And in itself, that is good and right. You should do that. You should continuously optimize the existing. And uh, if you are uh, currently a successful company, well, then you are probably world champion at that. 
So you should do that. The problem, if you like, is that it's only for the short term because inherently what you're doing is you're improving upon the past. And each extra metaphorical blade you add to the razor, well, it creates less and less value, right? So therefore, you also need to conduct augmenting innovation and mutating innovation. And augmenting innovation, that is where you upgrade your core. That is where most digital transformation projects live. That is uh, where you go from analog to digital, to mobile first, to now AI first, and maybe soon we will all go to quantum first. That's a never-ending journey, leveraging technology to become more effective, more efficient, and more customer-centric. And then finally, you have mutating innovations, which is where you challenge the core, where you conduct your much more radical experiments, where you invent the future. And the design principles between augmenting and mutating innovations, they are different from each other. And when we talk about augmenting innovations, where most of these digital transformation projects live, then it can be helpful in, in sort of designing to optimize for, for your innovations here, to think about uh, whether you can create Trojan horses for yourself. And what I mean by that is, uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the story of the Trojan horse right now, so obviously I mean it in a positive sense here. But the notion is that you have something within your core that you can see it, but it's also shielded. So a, a great example of a Trojan horse in terms of digital transformation is the center of excellence. So uh, we see more and more companies creating those, and uh, that is smart because when you look at uh, companies and their innovation maturity, immature companies, what what tends to happen in those in regards to innovation is that you know, new buzzwords, there are new trends. So uh, in the latter years, it's been AI, right? So everybody's talking about AI. And that means that what you start to see a lot of different initiatives around an organization with AI this and AI that. And while in one way you can say, well, that's positive, it shows entrepreneurship in the organization. The negative aspect of it is that most likely it will not be the right people, in fact, working on these problems. It will not be the people who have the most knowledge about and uh, enough knowledge about how to leverage AI in regards to certain problems. And they most likely will not have the time and resources needed to do it really, really well. Most likely, even if it's new technologies, you don't even have the capabilities in-house yet in order to really leverage the opportunities here. So instead of having all of these sporadic uh, initiatives around the organization when you are uh, more immature and you need to level up in your maturity and you're uh, leveraging these new technologies is to create a center of excellence where you say, okay, so, you know, just to keep a simple example, let's say we need to, you know, uh, create AI-enabled uh, customer service uh, products uh, to um, instead of just running traditional uh, call centers or uh, or support those in one way or another. Right? Set up a center of excellence where you uh, investigate this and when you start experimenting with these solutions and where you recruit the right people to do this, which most likely means that you will also get people from the outside who have real expertise within this. And uh, another reason, so that means it's a much more focused effort where, where you uh, where you have your sole effort or your sole focus on this very important task. And the other benefit of creating a center of excellence like this is it 
most likely will uh, enable you to have a much more interesting job for the right people who have these special capabilities. Because again, if we talk about AI, there are not a lot of experts out there. There are not a lot of people with a lot of AI dirt under their nails. So it's very hard to recruit the best and the right people. So if you have a compelling job to offer them, then that makes it much more likely that you can recruit the right people to actually work on this stuff and create real value for your organization. So that is one example of a Trojan host that you can build for yourself. There's so much more in there in the book as well, but we won't have time to cover that because I'd love to jump to the idea of hacking, cultural hacks within the organization. So to create that environment for innovation to spontaneously happen and you give cultural hacks really low level ones that and and they can be done for free within the organization let's share just some of those cultural hacks to develop an innovation environment here you share three core elements scenes agents and processes yeah so uh, it's back to one of those good newses about uh, innovation is that it's much more to do with mindset and design than it has to do with money and that means there are many cultural hacks you can apply to help you create the right innovation culture and even transform your organizational culture into a much more innovative one. I will argue that any organization in the world needs every single employee to be an incremental innovator. And when I say incremental innovator, I mean people who are comfortable with change, but within the boundaries that they experience in their organization. So it's not the same as a radical innovator, which are the people who are comfortable with change without any boundaries, right? Those are the ones who are overrepresented as startup founders, for instance. You know, they collect their pensions and put them into a startup that most likely will fail and they like it, right? Most of us, we're not like that. And that's perfectly all right. You do want those radical innovators to the much more radical experiments where you, you do mutating innovation and you challenge the core. But everyone needs to be an incremental innovator. Everybody needs to be comfortable with change, not just accept it, but be comfortable with it. And and there's a bunch of culture hacks you can apply in order to enable that. Now, so the scenes has to do with everything you can see here, feel, touch, and smell. So like your physical environment, but uh, increasingly also your digital environment. And certainly now, as we're talking during the corona crisis, where everything has gone digital. But, you know, uh, there's um, there's less research on how we experience uh, the digital realms versus the physical realms. Uh, but there's a lot of research on the impact that physical realms has on uh, our productivity, our creativity, and our happiness at work. Now, increasingly, we hear of new terminologies such as having Zoom fatigue and how it can be exhausting to be constantly on a, a digital platform and how it might make people feel more insecure. But the core here is that we need to be very aware of how we also decide how we design our work environments because they can both positively and negatively impact how safe we feel. And the sense of safety is really important when you do innovation because innovation is inherently risky. So that also points to the need of designing for psychological safety. Now, so there's uh, there's some uh, academic research behind this from a Howard professor called Amy Edmondson. And then Google did a large experiment uh, looking into this as well, where they took 200 teams and followed them for two years to understand what created the continuously successful team. And they found out that number one by a mile was to create psychological safety in teams. That surpassed 
the composition of the team and how much experience people had and how many prior successes and uh, how, what kind of education they had. So if you can create psychological safety in a team, meaning that everybody feels that they can voice their opinions, that they can have discussions without being hammered over the head, that there's a flat hierarchy, stuff like that, that uh, may sound obvious, but you know it's not obvious on, unless you are aware of it and you also design for it. And that doesn't cost money, but it does demand that there are leaders who are very aware of this and who think about this when you know when they create meeting cultures and brainstorming cultures, et cetera, et cetera. And then you know KPIs and reward systems are, are again another example of how you can design and create culture hacks that don't cost money, but that can significantly impact behavior and thus also culture and mindset. And a, a favorite example of mine is, uh, the Courageous Penguin Award. So uh, I know there are different organizations out there who have tried to apply, uh, or who have applied this. And so the idea here is, um, I'm sure all the listeners, they have you know, seen the National Geographic movies where you see the penguins, they line up at the edge of the iceberg and they look down. And, and what they do is they wait for that one penguin to make the first jump because that penguin doesn't know whether it will hit ice or water Hence, sort of the courageous part, right? But if it hits water, well, then everyone else follows. So uh, the idea is, you know, adopting that principle and to say, uh, and, you know, for instance, that's where I learned about this was in certain parts of Google where they, uh, where they applied this. So they took the principle of this and they created the Courage Penguin Award. And they give it out to a person on a team, not for sort of the achievement or the results or they sold for so much money or whatever, but they hand out the award to someone who dares to take on a challenge, even though they don't know what will happen and regardless of how it turns out. Now, so that's a small hack, if you like, but it speaks volumes about the type of culture that you're trying to create. Again, what are you incentivizing? What are you, in fact, rewarding in the organization? And we need to be incredibly mindful of that. There's a lot of, uh, obviously, startup, uh, lean startup, startup culture, and the notion of failing uh, and celebrating failures. And um, and it sort of it, it ties into this, right? And uh, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about the wording of failure because I, I, I don't think psychologically that anybody really likes to fail. I, I tend to prefer celebrating learning and celebrating persistence, although there's a failure built into that. But that's a more perhaps a nerdy uh, semantics discussion here. But, but those are some of the examples that you know you can apply. That has absolutely nothing to do with your funding, but it has to do with how you look upon your processes and how people they interact and how you can, you know, create design principles that support the kind of behavior that you would like to see. I love that concept of the courageous penguin because it, it ties nicely to the part I'd like to finish up on today, which I loved, which is you give this in some of your talks as well, but it's the idea of mutating innovation that you mentioned. And you give the story of Arthur C. Clarke and this idea that you're no longer improving the past as with optimizing innovation or repairing the future as with augmenting innovation, but here you're inventing the future. And it seems fitting the period of time we're in now 
that we need to invent our futures and we should always be top of our mind anyway. I'd love if you'd share this as a final story. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful story, I think. So the mutating innovation is about challenging your core, is where you really dare to be radical and you say, what, I mean, where you explore and experiment with what might our future be in the long term, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, if our core might be something completely different. And uh, so the story of uh, with Arthur C. Clarke here is that, you know, he, um, I'm, I'm sure most know him, famous sci-fi writer, right? Most famous for writing 2001. And um, so he also uh, obviously wrote many, many other books. And um, one of the books that he wrote was called The Fountains of Paradise. And in that book, he explores a near future where human beings, they built space elevators. And, uh, you know, a space elevator it is exactly what it says it is. It's an elevator that goes from Earth and thousands of kilometers out into space. And in the book, he explores this near future where they build space elevators that go 36,000 kilometers out into space, transporting materials, transporting human beings. And uh, he won the Hugo Award for this book, which is the most prestigious award you can get for writing sci-fi novels. And when he got the award, and the journalists in the room, they asked him, so, Arthur, but when do you think we will actually have space elevators in real life? And he said, well, probably around 50 years after they all stop laughing. And to me, that is you know, really uh, <laughs> remarkable. It's, it's funny and it's also insightful right? because uh, you need to stop laughing and take things seriously in order to truly experiment and investigate properly right and once you do that then you start to see remarkable things happen and as it just so happens uh, primarily in in china and in japan we now see experiments with space elevators and uh, primarily in japan we've seen uh, some results out of the shizuka university where they have tested space elevators uh, grand very small ones uh, you know three by i think six by six by ten centimeters uh, that they have deployed between two mini satellites on a 14 meter cable, and uh, we've we've learned some of those results recently. And uh, it seems that they were able to at least make it go one way, not necessarily the other way. That's that isn't entirely clear. But what we do know is that they have said that the next experiment they're going to run, and uh, who knows, it probably will be delayed because of the coronavirus. But nevertheless, the next experiment that the university is going to conduct on space elevators is not going to be on a 14-meter long court. It's going to be on a 2-kilometer long court. So what that means is that we are radically approaching something like proof of concept that space elevators is, in fact, a real thing. And, you know, back to Arthur C. Clarke and... You know, we will probably have space elevators 50 years after they stop laughing. Well, a lot of people stopped laughing and took this very seriously. And, you know, it's I find when it comes to innovation, it's always really helpful to look to space for inspiration and for principles. Because once you go to space, everything becomes super difficult. So if you can make things happen in space in an environment so hostile as that, then what can't we achieve down here on Earth? And that is really, I believe, the mindset that all of us, we need to apply to move into a better future. Beautiful way to finish, Chris. And where can people find out more about you, your organization, your work, the book, etc.? I can encourage people to go to www.sunordic.org, which is uh, Singularity University based out of the Nordics, where, uh, which I am a co-founder of and, and where I reside. 
Uh, I can also encourage them to check out uh, Singularity University's Corporate Innovation Podcast, which I am the host of, where uh, I explore also a lot of these um, future forward-looking uh, innovations and talk to innovators who are, are working on the cutting edge of innovations. So if you go to su.org or you simply uh, Google the Corporate Innovation Podcast or Singularity University's Corporate Innovation Podcast, uh, then you can find that as well. Author of Transforming Legacy Organizations, Turn Your Established Business into an Innovation Champion to Win the Future, Chris Ostergaard, thank you for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.